Housing policy or why the Greens and Dutton are so wrong. Wages versus profit price spiral. And good news on national parks. This is The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday. I am your co-host Ben Davison and joining me is the great and glorious, the best-selling author of QAnon and On, A Short and Shocking History of Internet Conspiracy Cults and recent star of the ABC's drum program, (laughs) my wife and your friend Van Baddam. And puppy mother, which I think is probably my best job. Indeed, indeed it probably is. How are you today, Van? Tell everybody what I'm doing right now. You're patting the puppy. He's so cute. He's so cute. He's finally being a good boy. And Ben and I are wearing matching outfits. You all wanted to know that, didn't you? We are. We are wearing our Unions for Yes hoodies. Uh, not courtesy of because we paid for them, but from <laughs> from uh, Australian Unions. You can go to the Australian Unions website to check out their Unions for Yes merchandise there. Uh, but Van, today, of course, is Ida Hobart Day, which is the day for standing up against LGBTQI plus discrimination. And we had the great privilege today to attend a flag raising ceremony, which might be why the puppy was so annoyed with us because he didn't get to come. No, he didn't get to come. It was a it was a wonderful but also very respectful occasion because in the Shire of Moorable in Western Victoria, it has been a contentious issue to raise a pride flag. There has been years of debate about whether it'd be just like raising an ISIS flag, which is one of the most insulting things I've ever heard any kind of politician say. And finally, a community campaign led by the Moorable Rainbow Allies organised for that flag to get raised. And just in case people think that homophobia, biphobia, transphobia is absent in parts of even the Victorian community, and obviously this is a very progressive state, it's a very smaller liberal state where the fundamental recognition that human rights and equality is non-negotiable is something that we would think that a, a, a solid majority mm, understood, mm. and I believe a majority do. We had a situation where people had to quit their jobs over the issue of a pride flag being raised mm, mm. Uh, to defend the principle that the LGBTQIA plus community here have the right to be represented. So it was it was quite emotional being there, actually, and I know you felt the same. It was wonderful to have cake and coffee and, you know, be with people we knew and people turned out in colours and had pride flags as capes and wore magnificent outfits. Mm, mm. But it was also, wow, like to just get a flag raised cost people jobs, cost people time, cost people effort, cost people emotional energy. I think it shows, so every local government area in Victoria uh, has raised the flag today. So a huge shout out to all uh, of the people who campaigned uh, around that to make that happen because it's been a huge campaign for a long time. Uh, You and I have had some involvement in that uh, in, in the various local government areas that we're a part of uh, throughout central Victoria and and it has been difficult, and you know I've told the story of having two mums growing up in uh, regional Victoria. Uh, people often think, oh well, Ballarat, you know, very progressive place. Union Not time. always. Yeah. Not always. The eighties were a very different time, and it was interesting today to have conversations with people uh, and their various experiences. And I think the you know it was important for us to come and attend uh, the the flag raising in Murrabool. Because it was one of the last uh, to hold out, uh, if I can put it that way, against raising a flag. And you know, look, 
the sky didn't fall. It was actually a beautiful blue sky. Uh, the dogs didn't turn into cats. The earth didn't open up and swallow people. And it was fantastic to see local federal MP Sam Ray and his family there as well this morning. Yeah, as, as the local mayor and many of the councillors. Uh, and when you think back to uh, even just a few years ago, as you say, some of the bitter comments that were made around raising a flag uh, to see uh, how much the leadership of the community has moved on this issue and of course we're seeing this replicated as i say in local government areas right around victoria uh, a lot of hard work from a lot of people and you know did far more than either you or i did to just keep that keep that boulder going up the hill and every time it slipped a little bit just to put a bit more effort into getting it to go up a bit further and a bit higher and a huge congratulations to everyone involved because it's not easy. There's a lot of emotions involved. Hearing some of the stories today, sharing some of my stories today certainly has made me emotional, as you know, and uh, I appreciate your patience with me today, darling, because it has been has been an emotional day for me and, and probably more emotional than I expected it to be. Well, progress is hard. It is hard. The theme of this show, by the way, is that progress is hard. And I look at the experience over your life, like in some ways it's like, wow, I can't believe this changed so quickly. But when you were a little child being actively persecuted for having gay parents, like I'm sure it seemed like that horrible feeling of lack of progress and powerlessness would last forever. Yeah, it really did. And when you think, when I think back on it, um, it's in my lifetime, right? And I'm 40 now. Uh, and so 30 years ago, people were still physically and verbally abusing me in the street for having, uh, for having two mums. Uh, you know, that's, that, and I'm, I'm a cis, uh, hetero, six foot one white man, you know, with shoulders a meter and a bit wide. Like it, it's, it's still out there. We know that phobias and hatred still exist. And I think, you know, Dan Andrews gave a good uh, comment today about people who are protesting uh, around story times in libraries, going, these are not compulsory events. You do not have to attend, but equality is non-negotiable in this state and people have the right to be who they are and we're not going to allow the hatreds and prejudices of a small number of people to determine the policies that govern the majority of people. And today's... Uh, outpouring of solidarity and support, I think, really demonstrates that that that's now the prevailing community attitude. Whereas maybe thirty years ago, well, not maybe thirty years ago, it wasn't. Thirty years ago, it, we were much more defined by our hatreds and our exclusions rather than our inclusions. And it was really good to have conversations today with people who perhaps hadn't thought about these issues very much. In, for most of their lives because it didn't directly impact them. And I said, look, I understand that. Uh, and I think sometimes people look at me and they go, well, you turned out okay. It couldn't have been all bad. There's a lot of work that goes on behind the scenes to keep this facade from crumbling into dust, as you well know. Yeah, a bit, a bit, <laughs> a bit. But it is. And there are communities that are bearing that trauma. And yeah. like that takes love and patience and work to get through. And that's fair enough. And there are many people who had it far worse than I did, my own mums included, I should say, 
who really did bear the brunt of a lot of hatred for, for no reason, hatred that served no purpose except to punish and demean other human beings, other people in this country. And so pleasing to see how that's changing. And one of the things I want to point out, Van, um, you know, the Australian Union movement has been really pushing uh, the forefront of this for some time now. You know, not always, but certainly in the last decade or so, really pushing it forward. And just in the last 12 months, with a Labor government in power, Australian Unions has managed to get anti-discrimination measures in the Fair Work Act for trans, intersex and gender diverse people. You know, 10 years ago, 30 years ago, that would never have been possible. Now it's there. Now it's legislated. You know, if you are from a community that feels marginalised or is uh, discriminated against in any way, shape or form, one of the absolute key acts that you can undertake in your own interest and the interest of your community is to join a union because you can come together in a place that is safe and you can strategize and you can work out how to make those changes happen. And build coalitions. Absolutely. In solidarity. You know, the reason why solidarity is the most beautiful word is that it's about finding the love and the support and the activism of those who may not be like you but who will show up for you. And it's really telling that some of the, there's a statement that the Victorian Trades Hall reads out um, before rallies and it says that there is no place for hatreds of any kind in our movement, whether they be sexism, homophobia, uh, uh, racism, racism, transphobia, transphobia, any of those Like it's a really clear statement about acceptance, and the power of acceptance versus the weakness of hatred and division. And it's a really, it's a really powerful thing. And look, you can join your union online. We always encourage people to do that. You go to AustralianUnions.org.au slash WOW, that's W-O-W. You can do that at any time. I encourage you to do it while you're listening if you're not already a member. Then I, I just want to make the acknowledgement that in the context that a lot of people have been terrified about these right-wing, just disgusting garbage monsters yeah. who have been targeting things like Drag Queen Story Hour and obviously our friends at Monash Council who found themselves targeted with the most obscene threats of violence and hatred and where people were made physically unsafe by a campaign of just far-right loons it's the loons, the the right, the hard right, the far right, the extremist right, the proto-terrorist or the aspirational terrorist right, are uh, making these threats and disrupting these not because they're supported by a majority. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Mm. You know, to look at that crowd this morning at Idaho, but in Moorable, like a very diverse crowd, a diverse crowd uh, socioeconomically, a diverse crowd in terms of cultural background, a diverse crowd, you know, in terms Mm. of age and gender and all of those things, there were babies to very senior citizens who were there. And that is why we're getting this just crazed extremist pushback because the majority community 
a mainstreaming acceptance, tolerance and diversity, which is why, you know, the rump of haters who only understand power if they're depriving other people of having any or any equality are absolutely determined to set everything on fire before they're consigned to the dustbin of history. And I just want people who have been on the receiving end of that hatred, particularly trans people, to know that you have allies who have your back do not think you are fighting alone. You know, the community is with you. The state of Victoria is with you. As Daniel Andrews made very clear today, the government of Victoria is with you and we will keep fighting until all the loons are in the bin. Absolutely. And I just want to also say at the flag rising today, and I've noticed this at many of the ceremonies that you see video footage of online, uh, it is also a cross-section of political beliefs and political views, not always political parties, but political beliefs and political views, uh, because this is the mainstream. People understand that people are people and they live in our community. We all live in the community together. Van, I want to talk about, uh, I want to talk about housing policy, uh, because I know it's a bit of a gear change. No, it's uh, been a very popular topic with me this week <laughs> after I went on the drum, let me tell you. I did have to explain to some people what a ziggurat was uh, today. They're very large pyramid-like structures, folks, um, with lots of steps. You probably don't want one uh, built uh, in the middle of, of, your, uh, of your suburb uh, or anywhere, really, anymore. Traditional Mesoamerican cultures use the ziggurat form of architecture for public sacrifices as well, I just like to underline. I made a point that there's a certain political party that likes to talk a big game on public housing, uh, and yet when it comes to the actual local government area approvals for zoning public housing, find all kinds of fun excuses to not build any in their electorates. At which point, I threatened to build as housing minister in a kingdom I no doubt would control with my mind. Mind, uh neo-brutalist ziggurats wherever said people lived. I sort of like the look of them, but look, they're not for everyone. But we are huge <laughs> brutalism fans, can I just say? It's a style of architecture that really suits our personalities. If you're ever in Melbourne, you should check out the Plumbers Union building uh, on Victoria Street. It is uh, listed, I believe it's listed in many of the uh, international guides to brutalist architecture. Uh, not sure how practical it is for the plumbers union, but they're stuck with it now. So I look, bet the plumbing's fantastic. <laughs> you would hope so. So look, Van, you you've touched on it there. The Greens, right? So effectively, the Greens and Peter Dutton have teamed up to block Labor's signature housing fund policy. Mm. And I want to break down some of this because there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of misinformation about what this is. Uh, there's a lot of spin cycle, uh, and I'm just rather a lot of public theatre around this particular issue. So much public theatre, and it comes back to that theme, right? So this is what it really is. So Labor has put forward legislation that would set aside ten billion dollars into a fund, a legislated fund, for the purposes of building thirty thousand homes using half a million dollars a year sorry, half a billion dollars a year, $500 million a year from the earnings of the fund. in 20,000 in the first five years for social housing, 4,000 of those 
would be for women and children escaping domestic violence, and 10,000 for essential workers. One of the criticisms that has been leveled about this is that the Greens want the $10 billion spent on housing now. Now, that's and only for uh, people who are homeless, homeless, not for essential workers. Right. Right. This is the distinction that we make between public housing, which is people who are on a lease trying to get homes um, and obviously relief homelessness, and social housing, where you look at targeted communities of workers, veterans, various other community key workers, yeah. um, and create housing for them, and affordable housing, which is for uh, an intervention of the government, creating housing opportunities for people to engage in the property market in a particular area in the way that they may not be able to if it's just left to market forces. These are the different types Correct. of housing. So we public, social, and affordable housing. Correct. Uh- And by the way, the research is really, really clear that a mix of public, affordable and social social and market housing is actually, actually the best way of having a socio-housing policy. That is to say, people of different socioeconomic levels interacting with each other in a way that both humanises different groups to one another and also provides an opportunity for groups to interact and benefit from the various life experiences, wisdoms, education, skills and abilities that they can bring. Because of high levels of cross-cultural engagement. Right. So this idea that we'll build $10 billion, putting aside the money bit for a minute, of purely public, homeless-only housing is actually a very very much a throwback concept. It's the sort of thing that happened in the 60s and 70s. Particularly in the United States and developments like Carbini Green and sort of infamous housing developments. Um, You may have heard of Carbini Green because, and I do apologise if I have mispronounced it, I learn most things by reading about them, but it's the the, uh, Housing Commission public housing development that's the basis for the horror movie Candyman. Oh, yeah. And the notion that, you know, in this environment of entrenched, systematised, structurally marginalised poverty, uh, you know, monsters appear. That's, by the way, spoiler alert, the metaphor for what's going on in that movie. So fundamentally having a mix of types of housing is good. It actually creates better social outcomes, better economic outcomes, all of the outcomes the government strive to achieve, right? It might almost be that you've got some experience with this, Ben. Well, I have actually. I've done a, quite a bit of work in this in this space, having been CEO of Southport United in Care, South Melbourne, Port Melbourne, Albert Park. That area itself, uh, a mix of different types of housing, and quite frankly how the towers stand out and are separate from other forms of housing around them creates a problem, right? And there are different interventions that can be done to mitigate that and so on. It's better to address it from the beginning, to start with a structural solution rather than trying to retrofit one after you've built a giant skyscraper, uh, which is a filing cabinet for people who were previously homeless. That's not an ideal way to do housing. So let's come back to the fund. So do we want more houses? Yes, obviously we do, right? The fund 
the Greens' criticism of the fund is that it's basically being invested on behalf of the Australian people when it should be used to invest in these housing projects. Yep. So they're they're saying if you've got $10 billion, just spend it all on public housing now, don't invest it. Right. The problem with that, and there's so many problems with that, the first is that we can't actually build $10 billion worth of housing right now. So Peter Martin, who's an economist, did a really lovely piece. And by the way, the overall tenor of his piece is that he doesn't think the Labor Party policy is the solution. And let me also point out that at the moment, every single economist who has written on this has a variety of different solutions. If you read 15 different opinion pieces around housing in this country, you'll get 25 different solutions to this problem. The the solution that's been offered up by the democratically elected government of the Commonwealth of Australia is for this fund. Now, Peter Martin's point is that since the 1970s, Australia has only completed between 22 and 29,000 houses a year. Even in the years where we've had big increases in the number of houses we've started to build, we've still only completed between 22 and 29,000. It seems weird, right? Because we've all seen those programs in the past, get a bonus if you build a new home, get free land if you build a new home, get stamp duty off if you build a new home. All those programs do. Absolutely ruin regional Victoria. All those programs do is front end the construction process. So housing builds start, but the completion rates just drag out. The timing drags out. There are fundamental supply problems. One of the reasons why Labor set up Jobs and Skills Australia, a statutory authority, was to deal with some of the fundamental supply problems around skills. There are only so many people who can wire a house, who can plumb a house, who can build a house. Now, you might say to me, Van, but Ben, surely we could bring in migrant workers to do some of this work. Well, maybe we could. But here's a fun fact that we've told people on the show before, Van. The wire, the colour of the wire, which is the ground wire, which contains no current in China, is actually a high-voltage wire here in Australia. So if we bring in workers, let's say, from China to do electrical work, they still have to be trained because if they're not, zappo! Oh, that's terrible, Ben. Right? Well, yeah, I mean, this is the thing. Different countries operate design standards. Australian design standards and EU design standards are different. Like being like a particular culture doesn't necessarily mean that you share the same building practices. And, yes, it is a question of... It is a question of training. Yeah. And also, like, language training, all those things. Ben and, ben and I, by the way, are very pro-migration. Absolutely. We think migration's great. But we think anybody who wants to be Australian should be welcome here and that would be fantastic. But there's no shortcut on this, and this is the problem. Pumping $10 billion into housing is only going to pump up the price of housing. And that's what the uh, Peter Martin article basically said, is that every time we've done this sort of thing... It's dragged out the time to completion and it's increased the cost of building because there's not enough people who have the skills to do the work and there's not enough supply, particularly at the moment. You talk to any home builder, and we talk to a few, they will tell you the price of lumber, the price of frames for houses has gone up, not by 10% or 20%, but by 100%, by 300%. 
These are incredibly expensive materials. Especially because so many people trapped at home during coronavirus, Yeah, you know, trapped at home looking at things they want to doing or looking at a future where this might happen again and trying to make their accommodations more reasonable. There was a massive renovation boom mm. as a result of the – and it happened everywhere. It didn't just happen in Australia. Like this was a worldwide phenomenon which put enormous price pressure, competitive price pressure – on the price of lumber and other bits and pieces. And, of course, it's been compounded by the fact that the war in Ukraine has reduced the world's access to construction pine, a lot of which comes from Ukraine, quite frankly. There has been a number of these factors that have compounded this problem. Now, And it's, it's funny because people seem to think there aren't you know, oh, well, we'll just do this. Well, we'll just, it's the way a child thinks. It's like, oh, well, we'll just plant more trees. It's not, but there's a time. <laughs> there's time and employment and resource efforts that go into planting trees. Like they're not, you can't just get a tree tomorrow. Oh, well, we should use new materials. And it's like, yeah, we absolutely should. And on this program all the time, we talk about the amazing things they're doing with timber technology and bamboo and everything yeah. else. But it also takes time. Like nurturing a new industry is not something that you can just manifest the outputs of tomorrow. And this comes to a point you and I were talking about today, right, is that the the Greens, and we'll talk about Dutton and his steadfast opposal to this, uh, steadfast opposition to this proposal shortly, but the, the Greens seem to think that all politics is – Say a thing, manifest the thing, the thing happens. Now, I get that, right? I get that because we talked at the start it's of the, the show. It's the self-help book view of politics. Yeah. Well, Just say a thing and it will manifest in your life. Well, we, I read The Alchemist. I didn't actually. I've never read The Alchemist. But we talked earlier, right, about raising the flag and how an important uh, symbol and such an important uh, piece of work was done to get that flag raised. Now, the material... The cost of that is very, very little. The cost of a flag, the cost of updating a website, the cost of the little event with some tea or coffee. Maybe the whole thing financially costs 10 grand. Costs people in time and effort, and I acknowledge the effort put in to make that happen. But the Greens seem to think that that, the way that we achieve those social reforms, those community-based reforms, is the same methodology in how we achieve structural economic reform. And it's simply nonsense. That's not how things work. Well, Ben, you've often said, you know, we can change anything. Well, of course we can change anything. But it doesn't mean we can change anything instantly. We're not wizards. (laughs) We're people. So (laughs) don't let the Harry Potter glasses fool you, right? We have to actually work through- Especially not on Idaho, but day, Ben. <laughs> the material realities that we're presented with around skills, around supply shortages, all those things. And this is why momentum is so important, and this is why so many Labor people are, 10 years later, still furious about the Greens blocking the environmental, the emissions trading scheme yeah. and climate action taken by the then Rudd-Gillard-Rudd government because- 
you actually have to start. If you want to develop the infrastructure, the actual infrastructure beyond just a mechanism, policy change, taxation change, but build things like wind and solar, you know, retrofit uh, heavy emissions industries into lower emissions industries, look at investments, and a shout-out to Terry Butler who's always campaigned for this, for solar boats Mm. and solar shipping and those kind of all of the amazing things, wood technology, all these things we talk about that can be done, you actually have to start. And starting means you begin that process of the training, of the industry building, of the resourcing, of looking at intersectional, like, uh, you know, policy mm. outcomes and predispositions and proclivities and testing around who's employable, who needs to be trained, who needs to be retrained, where it happens, the geography of the infrastructure, all of these things they're complex systems. And for them to be more ambitious, you actually just have to start. And that's the, the case with the housing policy mm. that Labor has put forward. This is the start. Absolutely. It's and not a Godard movie. You can't just decide to start in the middle or the end. <laughs> and what really makes me annoyed, what really angers me, and I know this angers you as well, is that at one level, the Greens want everything now, absolutely everything all of the time, right? And they want it today, yesterday. A little bit of everything all of No, they time. want absolutely everything. And if they can't have it, then they want nothing, right? And so this brinksmanship around this housing fund. At the same time, at a local level, we know Green Council after Green Council stops the tangible construction of homes for people. Sometimes, sometimes they're just market-based rents or for sale, right? And you can make an argument about that. But they're often mixed developments. Oh, well, they're not purely publicly owned. Oh, we went through this in Victoria, and I said this on the drum. Like those of you who abjure Twitter because it's unclean, and I agree with you, especially this week, that's another story, um, might have seen some of the pushback to my comments on the drum, like Van Batam hates poor people, Van Batam hates public housing and all of these things because I criticised the Greens' policy on housing and I criticised it because I am Victorian and I live in this state and following, as I do, you know, the development mm. of social infrastructure because I am, what's the word I'm looking for, a democratic socialist? Oh, I guess that's two words. <laughs> I'm rather aware of the hijinks that the Greens have gotten up to as at one point the balance of power party in Victoria, which is what happened after Andrews got elected Mm. the first time in 2014. In the upper house. In the upper house where the Greens and their Tory friends stopped housing development and it was all, oh, well, you know, it's impure because it's not just public housing. It's like, yeah, but it is public housing and affordable housing and social housing and the kind of sociological informed mixed developments that all the people who are trained at universities to reflect on past mistakes and hopefully not make them in the future advise housing projects to Mm. look like and stopped it and stopped and stopped it. The government had to change in Victoria and the balance of power had to change in Victoria for the Victorian state government to be able to start to realise its housing policy and it was outrageous. Ben and I were also around when the city of Yarra, the Greens Mm. and the Socialist Party voted together to stop the development of housing for homeless older Australians as part of development and the justification given was that one tree 
was in the way. And, you know, you'll hear Greens MPs around the city of Melbourne go, oh, yeah, but I've got so much public housing, so much social housing in my seat, none of which the Greens themselves are responsible for building. No. In fact, one of them quite openly said it was from the 60s and actually a Liberal Premier of Victoria built the, those particular towers. You know, and, and look, uh, another economist actually pointed out that one of the biggest problems around getting more homes built is our planning regulations. Uh, and for a long time, I've pushed back on some of the some of the comments around, oh, we need to change the planning regulations. Because I've also been a big advocate for changing the tax system. Now, uh, Access Economics, uh, Chris, I can't remember his name, uh, Richardson, I think it might be. What is Access Economics, Ben? Well, Access Economics put out this this piece uh, in the SMH of the Age today, talking about, you know, we could change negative gearing and maybe we should and there's things to do there. That would impact price by about 1% to 2%. Um, let's say it impacts price by 5%. In Sydney, prices have gone up 1% in the last month. So you, you lose that benefit straight away. The big gains are made by actually building more supply in places people want to live, where they have access to the places they work. So that nurses who work at the Royal Melbourne Hospital in the, in the city of Melbourne don't have to travel two hours each way to get to a shift. Same with nurses who work in hospitals in the middle of Sydney or in the middle of Brisbane. It, it happens in every major capital city where you've got nurses, you've got cleaners, you've got orderlies, you've got sanitation workers, you've got hospitality workers. Retail. Retail workers who are priced out of living in the places they have to work. And the key there is a change to the way planning is done. So that, and Chris from Access Economics said, yeah, yeah, my generation has been the NIMBY generation and we need to be the YIMBY generation. It needs to be, yes, in my backyard. You know, you drive through any Australian city and you get within 25 kilometres of the CBD and they are single-storey, freestanding houses. You go to any city in Europe, even most cities in the United States, that is just not a thing. No, it isn't. And it's it's really interesting because I was thinking about where my friends live because I was an exchange student yeah. to the UK and obviously I lived in London for 10 years and I went to university with an exchange group of people all over the world and had the great privilege of visiting them. Mm. And I was thinking about friends of mine who live in Helsinki and friends of mine who live in Vienna and Chicago as well as London. Like all of those cities, they all live in apartments. Yeah. Of course they live in apartments. Go to Berlin. Go to Rome. Go to Paris. Like the idea that those kind of, and yes, they're adorable, the single-storey worker cottages from North Melbourne that no workers live in yeah. anymore, that are just like hipster saturation points, they, they, they're gorgeous and I love them architecturally. They're an absolute delight. But you are looking at single, like single occupancy dwellings on land that has the richest transport links, the richest education links, the best proximity to healthcare. It's literally bourgeois squatting is what it is. There's a bourgeois squatocracy that is defending an inner city against, you know, just like 
an aesthetic development, which means that you have people who are actual like structural resource hogs, they're infrastructure hogs, social infrastructure hogs. Like the idea that somewhere like North Melbourne, you do not see single occupancy dwellings for kilometres until you get out of the, the city of Vienna or Helsinki. And all of those cities, by the way, are much smaller than Melbourne. Yeah. Chicago is smaller smaller than Melbourne. Like the, the metropolitan area, like, it is crazy. And so, look, that's that's one of the big issues, right? Well, a few of the big issues around this. I want to talk about Dutton's uh, uh, objection to this as well because this goes to why we set up a fund, right? And the Greens going, oh, it's gambling on the stock market. Firstly, the stock market has consistently outperformed real estate as a form of investment. So the idea that, oh, well, it's gambling on the stock market is actually gambling on house prices as well. Like any investment, whether you're investing in property, investing in the stock market, there's an element of risk. Quite frankly, over the long term, we're better off having a fund that pays dividends to building houses than just saying, oh, well, we've now got all this extra land on our balance Which sheet. Which is guaranteed by the government who still control the capital. I mean, this is what, do you really think that the government is, there's no guarantee there? Like if there was some kind of miraculous loss, the, go- the government would be like, oh, well, no housing this year. Like, well, well, and this is the thing. They point to the loss for the future fund, right, which is one of those funds that was set up. The future fund was set up to pay the pensions of, of public sector workers and, and defence personnel because the government had this massive unfunded liability. And John Howard went, we've got a surplus. We've had a windfall from the sale of, I think it was, part of Telstra or Qantas or one of the many things he sold off. Kidding, sold Qantas stuff. Uh, whichever. Well, it was a Howard sell-off, this one. and Telstra, probably. And he said, we'll set up the fund and that'll fund pensions that we're responsible for forever, right? These are not age pensions. These are the workers of the Commonwealth. Now, there was a loss in the future fund last year, but not one single retired public sector worker or defence uh, member didn't get their pension paid, right? Because that's not how it works. So the Greens are kind of pretending like, oh, well, if it makes a loss, then there'll be no housing and we, what will we do? Well, let me put it to you like this. If Peter Dutton gets his way and he blocks this with the help of the Greens, the Greens and Dutton block the establishment of the housing fund, how much money do they think Peter Dutton, Prime Minister Dutton, May. I know it's terrifying. I keep just, going, keep going, keep going. Push through. How Benny. much do they think Prime Minister Dutton is going to invest in housing in any way, shape, or form? I can tell you nothing. Nothing. Best case scenario, Peter Dutton will give everybody some form of uh, first home buyer grant, which will drive up prices again, just as it did under Morrison, just as it did under Turnbull, just as it did under Abbott. That's the only thing the Liberals do, right? And in fact, in fact, Van, there was a shadow minister. Senior Shadow Minister went to a real estate agent's <laughs> off-site conference just last week and talked about how they will crack open superannuation so people can buy their first home. Michael Sucker, I believe it was. Oh God. And what is it? We know what that does as well. Every single piece of research, every single study, every single piece of tangible evidence, because they've done it before, shows that just drives up price. Doesn't make it more affordable, doesn't make it more accessible, doesn't create more supply, just drives up price, and which is course, good for 
The real estate agents. It's great for the real estate lobby. And I want everybody to be really clear about the influence that the real estate lobby has over the Liberal Party. In many suburbs that are now represented by Teals, the real estate lobby, you would go around the eastern suburbs of Melbourne during an election and you would see like election Mm. posters, people like Josh Frydenberg, that was sponsored by the local real estate agents who had their branding on them. And we know from the 2019 election that the real estate lobby actively and viciously campaigned against Labor, often on a pack of lies, but actively campaigned. Well, when I was doing my data research around who was sharing the death tax lie, you know, this was this Mm. social media viral claim that was always copy and paste yourself, Mm. you know, like, and you would get this from a friend going, is this true? Is Labor really bringing in a death tax? And I would ask them, oh, who sent you this? And they would point to someone and they would point to someone. Every time I did that, and I'm sure it was just a massive coincidence, Mm. it just happened to be a real estate agent who had put that out at some point. And I just don't think there are that many real estate agents to act in such an organic manner around, uh, you know, ambit clients. And some of the large real estate companies did uh, confess to, to actively campaigning in the 2019 election, which is why transparency laws became so important. But Dutton wants to block this because it sets up a fund. Right, just like the future fund. Now, setting up a fund means that it's very hard to unstitch. You set up a fund, you set up a statutory authority, the the energy transition authority, as an example. Right? Why was everybody so happy, so keen, wanting an energy transition authority? Not just a government department, not just the billions of dollars that it's going to need to do the transition, but the authority. Because it's really hard to unstitch that. You've got to pass legislation. You've got to justify that. You've got a board of people who have been acting in good faith on behalf of the public who are appointed by a democratically elected government to do that work. There is a whole raft of checks and balances that come about when you establish a fund or establish a statutory authority. Peter Dutton doesn't want a housing fund because Peter Dutton doesn't want to fund housing. Full stop. He's not going to get $10 billion or $5 billion or $1 billion and build more public housing. That's not what he's going to do. Because it's not in the interest of the real estate lobby or any of the nonsense free market garbage that they all go on with. That's absolutely right. So the Greens are allying themselves to someone who, if he becomes Prime Minister, will not deliver what they want, who will actively deliver the opposite of what they want under a smokescreen of, we're making housing more available by letting you raid your retirement to pay for it. And yet they somehow magically think that if they just keep asking for $10 billion, we'll build 50,000 new houses, two or three years worth of new homes in a single year. It's just ridiculous. Going through the Labor policy, like the Labor ambition is to build a million homes by the end of the decade. But for that to even happen requires it to start in yeah. the beginning of this fund. And this is what I find just so amazing about the 
the opposition to the idea of a fund and the opposition to a statutory authority, a statutory authority which is almost impossible to remove mm. because you need an act of parliament, you need to get a democratic mandate to do something like that. You have multi-invested stakeholders who become part of those authorities, including the real estate lobby, who start mm. adjusting to the new reality. And stakeholders don't have to mean the people who sit on the board. It's the people who do the economic planning around what yeah. is this going to do to a market? What is that going to do to a market? You know, around environment mental legislation, climate change like legislation for years. It's all it's all been about, you know, um, markets having confidence in what's going to happen. That's not the whole picture, but it's part of it. It's a stakeholder that you can't pretend doesn't exist. When you create these authorities and these sustainable sources of revenue, so that $10 billion, rather than spending it, you're spending the interest on mm. that. You're spending the returns on that. The capital is still there. It takes that $10 billion like off the register. Mm. It doesn't put the public in a position where they have to make a decision around a priority of $10 billion for housing or $10 billion for defence or $10 billion for the architecture of climate action or $10 billion for education. It makes it a sustainable fund. The money will always be going into housing and there's not a competitive set of – competing, rather, set of priorities. And it's so important. The more – these and we've come we've come to accept that this is a good way to do things. The Clean Energy Finance Corporation actually makes money and invests in clean energy projects. It returns money to the taxpayer, which is why when the Liberals attacked it and cut it and tried to shut it down, there was such an outcry because here you had a statutory authority that was investing in renewables that was demonstrating these were economically viable projects and making a return for the government that it could then use to do other things like fund recurrent expenditure on health or the NDIS or education or the many other things that are recurrent expenditures that we don't necessarily know year to year what they're going to be. I just resent the whole politics of Christmas elves. Like I want something, therefore all these Christmas elves will just turn up and make it happen. Like public, it should just be public housing and we should build a million homes in the next year and we should just spend that $10 million. And it's like, well, what does that look like? Where? Well, that's all a Christmas elf problem. Yeah. Like we don't have the materials. Well, we need new materials. We'll get the Christmas elves to do that. You know, Christmas elves can like summon lumber out of <laughs> their ether. Like, and it is, it's a Christmas elf, elf yeah. view of politics that there's somebody else, i.e. the Labor Party, you know, the, misp- the movement of organised misbehaving servants, as I know the Greens think the Labor Party are. I mean, come on, let's be honest. And that, you know, they'll just be able to sort that out. And this ridiculous claim, like I, the Greens are actively blocking the housing policy. Yeah. They're actively blocking it. In fact, they voted with the Liberals to gag debate on it in the Senate the other day, which was beyond well, to, avoid, to avoid a vote. To oh, avoid sorry, vote. to avoid a vote. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, this idea that, oh, it's just... Who are these people? What are their seats? Where do they live? Who do they represent? You know, this absolutely, because I got attacked for saying, you know, if you just want public housing and not social housing, you fetishise poor people and you despise the working class and you think that they're entitled to nothing, Mm. even though it's the working class who clean up after you and clean up after your kids and make your neighbourhoods nice and livable and, Mm. you know, make sure your toilets flush and Mm. that the buildings don't fall down and you can get help when you need it and the rest of it. But these people aren't good enough to live near you. And can I be very honest, despite all the criticism I've received, 
I 100% stand by that comment because it is true. It is absolutely true. Talking about the working class van is a good segue to talk about wages because wages have gone up the most since 2013, a 3.7% annualized increase that was announced today. Now, of course, underlying inflation is still uh, in the sixes, which means that even with that high, you know, that, that biggest increase in 10 years, people are still going backwards. That's undeniable. No one is suggesting otherwise. Um, it's a real, it's a real issue that needs to be dealt with that there is still a rump of neoliberals who occupy some positions of power, some positions in the media, uh, and just some parts of our society who continue to insist that somehow or another inflation is being driven by a wage price spiral. It is a nonsense, an absolute nonsense. Real wages have gone backwards and continue to go backwards because inflation is out of control. And why is inflation out of control? Greed. Absolutely, because of greed. Phil Lowe stood up and said, oh, no, it's got nothing to do with profits. Despite the fact that I, now- I think it does. The Wall Street Journal, the Centre for Future Work, the Australia Institute, UBS have all said that there is margin-led, there is profit price uh, spirals, there are greed price spirals. What does margin-led mean? Margin-led, this is a term that uh, a UBS economist in London used to say that what has happened is- uh, Companies have convinced consumers, convinced households, convinced small businesses that their price increases have to happen because of inflation, but are in fact racing ahead of inflation and increasing their margin. So margin, the margin is leading the price increase. They're basically going, look, we think the price increase is going to be five, so why don't we tell them it has to be 10 and we'll just take the extra as extra margin and extra profit. This is happening. These are economists on the ground who are working with corporations and small businesses who are reporting this as a reality. Phil Lowe in his ivory tower and his uh, high temple of neoliberal Friedmanite mythology sits there and the baloney factory sits there and pretends that somehow or another this isn't a reality well it is a reality people are living through it he's going to put up interest rates again no doubt he's now in punished government mode that's what we can expect to see today the ACTU has started to make the case in the Fair Work Commission to increase wages by 7% that would give people on the lowest wages over a million Australians a very small, very small, less than 1% real wage increase. The bosses relying on this garbage from Phil Lowe and the rest of these high priests of Friedmanite monetary economics are arguing that actually the lowest paid workers should get 3 or 3.5%, which is a real pay cut. Now, Fundamentally, that is unfair, it is un-Australian, and it is bad economics. The lowest paid workers spend the money they make in our economy. They spend it domestically. They spend it on the cost of living. That's why we call it a cost of living crisis or a cost of living problem, because it's their cost of living that they have to fund. They're not spending it on importing 
fancy French wines or Italian cars or American soft drinks or South American wood tables, uh, looking at the grains, um, they are spending it on the day-to-day essentials. It's different when they do it, Ben. But it is fundamentally a problem. Different. It's really different. And credit to Sally McManus and all the members of the trade union movement who have been out there today. I've seen workers standing up, holding signs, making this case really, really strongly. Millions of people rely on the minimum wage case every year. Far more people get a minimum wage increase as a result of the work that unions do than there are members of unions. It is absolutely fundamental and vital to the economic health of our community that this happens. If you're not a member of a union, you should join to support the minimum wage case. Hey, Ben, I know how people can join unions. How can they join unions? Do you know there's a web link and it doesn't matter what you do, you can find the union for you if you go via www. No, <laughs> Australian Unions. I'm sure there's a www. All right, just try australianunions.org.au slash wow. And wow stands for week on Wednesday. Wednesday. Wednesday, the week on Wednesday. Hey, it's been a great week. Woo! So you can see which one of us does the tech work. Uh- <laughs> Australian Unions. Withering glance from Van Battam to Ben Davison. AustralianUnions.org.au slash wow. So it fundamentally has to happen because there are these pockets that continue to make this argument. They're out there today. They're, they're going to continue to try and drive down wages. And the government is doing its bit. It's said it will fund uh, an increase in the wages for aged care workers. It has said it supports an increase in the minimum wage. But at the end of the day, Workers banding together is how we lift wages. The bosses do it. They have their lobby groups. They're in there making the arguments. Oh, absolutely. They own so many of the media channels, it's not funny, and they will put up nonsense argument after nonsense argument. You've noticed that they've stopped relying so much on experts from that side of the argument because, quite frankly, there are none that support this. Research paper after research paper shows increasing the minimum wage improves the economy. Lifting the wages of low-paid workers improves the economy. When workers' wages are rising in line with the cost of living, in fact, the economy overall does better. The science is settled. We are now in a place where the science on wages is the same as the science on climate change. It is settled. It is absolutely happening. But there will always be a rump who want to make a quick buck, they want to exploit people, and they don't care about the truth. And the truth is you've got to join your union, you've got to work hard together to raise wages, and hopefully, hopefully the Fair Work Commission will give those minimum wage workers an increase and we can start to get wages moving right throughout the economy. There have been some great Fair Work Commission appointments recently. It's really great to see the Fair Work Commission have some balance restored to it by having appointments of people who have long histories of being advocates for employees as opposed to employers. And before anybody goes, oh, well, you know, Labor's making uh, all these union appointments, let's be really clear that even with all of these appointments that they've made, two rounds of appointments, there are still 
more appointments on the Fair Work Commission who come from an employer background than from an employee background. Because Michaelia Cash, who is still, still a shadow minister and would be a minister in a government should Peter Dutton ever win an election, made, I think it was 90% of her appointments from the business lobby. That is a phenomenal unbalancing of what is supposed to be a balanced institution that takes uh, decisions in the interests of all of our community and every aspect of our economic system. Ben, we have to move on. There's going to be a lot more to say on that. The minimum wage decision won't come down for some weeks yet, and we will, of course, cover it in more detail as and when it happens. But I thought it was just important to touch on, given those wage figures, to put them into context. But there is some good news, Van. There is. Out of WA. There's amazing news out of WA and it made me absolutely thrilled because I love WA. I've worked there and spent a lot of time there and I think, I mean, it's beautiful. And one of the, I'm always making this point about Australia that it's always been many nations. Mm. And when you travel in this country, like the, the breadth of like environmental difference and cultural difference, multicultural, like it's such an extraordinary place to live. The fact that Australia is, is, one community and so many other communities, environmental, cultural, at the same time, I think it's just extraordinary. It also goes to why we are a commonwealth. Yeah. And we have states and we do have local governments. Uh, it, fundamentally, it does reflect the the different nature of, of our beings and at the same time how we can come together mm. in our common interest. Sorry, I got a bit dreamy there, but I was just, I was just back in Western Australia looking at the rolling hills and the pink light. Um, the good news is there's going to be a new national park in WA and it's the, it's bigger than Bali. It's bigger than the island of Bali. Bigger than Bali. Yeah, 478,000 hectares. It's called the Matawa Karara, Matawa Karara Karara National Park and Nature Reserve and it's at Lake Carnegie and it's part of the McGowan government's plan for our parks initiatives. And all in all, this new plan is adding more than 800,000 hectares to Western Australia's conservation estate. That's huge. It is, and it's great, and it's what we should be doing. And, like, this is this is the ongoing issue. Like I said, it's the theme of the episode. You have to start. Yeah. You know, like to if you want greater ambition, you actually have to ambish and begin. You have to ambish. You do. Like you have it. to ambish. Like You've got to it. begin. I was reflecting my career today. Like, I just find it amazing that I earn a living from writing now. Mm. You know, when I was starting my career when I was 15, when I did my first professional play, it was just the dream was to be sustainable as, as a writer. And I was going through, you know, talking with friends, all these different jobs that I held down over the years. I was a bar manager. I was a sommelier. You know, I was a gallery attendant. I was a front of house manager. I was a medical test subject. I ran a new newspaper delivery route. And I'd like to point out a lot of these were jobs that I had well into my 30s as yeah, well. Yeah. Transcription clerk, data entry clerk. And it, to be to to be where I am now meant that I just had to keep working and and just accumulate a bit more and do a bit. And it's just reflecting on my own life and the way that it, there's no linear route to the outcome. Mm. I think I'm saying this to young writers and young artists. There's no linear route. Well, I don't think it's just to young writers and artists. I think it's to everyone, right? Because uh, what's the saying? La lucha continua. You know, the struggle continues. And and that's 
fundamentally what we believe in, right, is that to improve we have to continue to struggle. Nothing and is gained without struggle. Nothing I mean, is gained without Andrew struggle. Andrew said it today in his speech about Idaho, but he was like, and I want to acknowledge just just a wonderful, absolutely on brand up yours from the Victorian Labor government, which was they did Drag Queen Story Hour in the Parliament building today and Andrews and a bunch of other ministers went, which I thought was absolutely fantastic. But he did say, you know, people want to, we want to believe that justice is inevitable mm. and the struggle is linear and it's just not. We just have to keep going and actually start. Can't win the fight if you don't start it, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And this great well, I'm news, not saying start the fight, but no, you know no, what I'm saying. But this great news out of <laughs> WA is building on some of the work that's already come before and will lead to more good work in, in this area. All right, Joe, shall we talk about the wonderful people who gave us the courage to keep going, who gave us a bit of ambition? Absolutely. And gave us a little bit of cash. Uh, a little bit of cash-ish to help us uh, reach more and more people. We're rapidly approaching uh, uh, 850,000 people having downloaded uh, the week on Wednesday. Uh, our cadre chip in $20 a month. We give them a shout-out. Ex- We're trying to get to a million dollars by the end of the year. A million, a million downloads. Sorry, a million downloads. We're a long way off a million dollars. Yeah, though, yeah, yeah. Uh, we're trying to get to a million downloads because Ben has promised that I can throw a week on Wednesday party if we get to a million downloads. Yeah, yeah. It'll be small because we don't have a million dollars. Yeah, no, we don't have a million dollars. But we do have some very generous people who do make voluntary am- contributions of $20 a month, who we call our cadre, $10 a month, who we call our Extend the Reach supporters, and a buck a week, who we call our buck a week supporters. And, of course, people who give one-off contributions. Obviously, this is always going to be free to listen to, always free to download, and any money that you give us for this podcast goes back into the podcast to expand the audience. So more people hear these messages, more people can engage, and more people understand these issues through the lens which Van and I bring to them, and hopefully you so enjoy. Van, our cadre are... Joe Lockery, Steph, Karina Bailey, Jane C. Campbell, Leona Gibbon, Shane Horsfall, Jack Power, Gail Ferguson, Rebecca Fanning for Longman, Matthew Hadley, Colm Kelly, Ali Vance, Mary M, Love Your Work, Yeet Yeti, at Anthony Balden, Claire, Jason Dallas, Camille, Akiva Boris, Kristen Sakluna, Gabe Kramer, Stephen Aitken, Trish Corey, Greg Miller, Kathy Birch, Fiona McNeil, Giotta, Jed Carney, Kristen Cole, Tamara James, Bronwyn, Punch Drunk, Veteran, Jenny Forster 7, Andrew Pascoe, Cassandra Tui, Ian Hampson, No Twitter for Me, Hannah Honda, Matt Bush, Richard Sands, Glenn Robbie, Brashton, North Kylie Phillips, Linda Cartwright, Leanne Shingles. I don't have Twitter. My name is Susan Myers, Kerry Nash 20, Billy Drew McCabe, Marissa Simon at Cattagal, Lauren Ash and Banjo, Narunga Man, John Sharpen, Peter Bath, Aaron Rollins, Louise Watson, and then our Extend the Reach supporters, took my breath in the wrong place, Stuart Munn, Blagoya, Matthew Kays, Mikey Mark at Vic Bit, Adrian Valente, Mazritza at Carol 68, Frank Nehus, Erica Pizzuti, Joe Lapina, Rachel Fitzpatrick, Kerry Arthur, Pauline Bate, Helen, Rosie Elliott, Lara at Robert Notfield 1, Michael Wales, Sandra Kelly, Dorena, Kathy Hay, Donald Vaughan, Damien Marley, Michelle Norton, Rodney Slap, Cameron, Troy Dragon, Daniel, Crazy Kezza, John DeHaan, at Ange Fennell, Anna Uren, Ross Kenner, 888, Kathy Burgess, Kirsten Black, Melanie Denning, Jody A, Penelope Judge, Jane Holloway, Spirit of Anger and Hope, at Knot, at Didham, Sharon Kelly, Beck and Lola, Richard Graver, Someone, Vita W, Nandita Hannah, Maura Louise Hawker, Megan Weckett, Graham, Oxley Beck, Cody, Tracy Lucas, Sandy Heinen, at Galvez, Greg Martin, Trainer, Amy Fawcett, Not on Twitter, Sarah, Ilian, and Andrew, Ivor Spillett, Andrew Bryan, Peter O.C., Linda, Sam Hadid, Keith Patterson, Lizette Twizzle, Bunkum Basher, Katie Ward, at the real Never Long Body, Sandy Baumgart at Not Sandy B, and Renee McGee. Congratulations to all of you for helping make the week on Wednesday a consistently top 20 uh, politics podcast in Australia. 
And of course, we continue to perform very well in news as well. When you consider that we're up against the likes of the Murdochs, but not only the Murdochs, the ABC, SBS, uh, and of course, uh, Seven West Media, as well as some of the radio stations and networks. Wouldn't happen without you, the listener, sharing, liking, engaging. The messages we've received over the last few weeks have been really uplifting, really given Van and I a whole energy around what we're doing with the week on Wednesday. And we really, really look forward to doing it every single week. Uh, we may not be able to do an episode next week. Uh, I have some other commitments which may take me away from being able to do the episode. Uh, hopefully we can do the weekend wrap and we'll see what else we can do. Of course, if you want to be a supporter, you can go to buymeacoffee.com slash week on Wednesday and you'll get every episode emailed to you along with some links about interesting things that are going on, including whenever Van has an article in The Guardian, you'll get that sent to you as well. Until next time, love you, Vanny. I love you too. Bye. Bye.